You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of 12 Monkeys. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was just into the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys? He's been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be unknown. Please! I can help you. Get you out. Monkeys. The thing mutates. We live underground. They're watching you. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. All right, everybody. You were just listening to the trailer for 12 Monkeys, and the story is as follows. Traveling back in time isn't simple, as James Cole learns the hard way. Imprisoned in the 2030s, James is recruited for a mission that will send him back to the 1990s. Once there, he's supposed to gather information about a plague that's about to exterminate the vast majority of the world's population. But aside from the manic Jeffrey, he gets little in the way of cooperation, not least from medical gatekeepers like Dr. Catherine Rayleigh. The film is starring Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, Brad Pitt, and Christopher Plummer. It is directed by Terry Gilliam, and it is written by David and Janet Peoples. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Bianca Gardner. Hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Baer. Dutch Angles the movie. Oh my god, (laughs) seriously. How many Dutch Angles? (laughs) How many? (laughs) Every single shot was the goddamn Dutch angle. <laughs> it's not a Terry Gilliam movie. With not even a Dutch shot. Angle. Just take a sip every it's time true. there's a Dutch angle. And I swear to you, you will definitely be drunk, no matter what it is you're drinking by the end of this movie. You won't make it out alive. <laughs> you could be drinking light beer. And I guarantee you, by the end of this two hour plus movie, you will be dead. <laughs> <laughs> this is another uh, movie that we are reviewing. Uh, part of our... I don't know what we should call it yet. Outbreak virus pandemic uh, podcast series. Uh, it's uh, like unofficially uh, what we've been Ooh, doing every Saturday. Poddemic. Oh, my God. Ooh. Oh, my God, Bianca. How dare you? Um, no, I, I, I actually kind of like that a lot. Um, but this is also, I think, I might be wrong. I think this is our first Terry Gilliam review here on the podcast as well. Uh, a filmmaker that honestly... 
not much to talk about uh, outside of some comments that he has made over the last couple of years. Um, his films have not had quite the splash that they had early on in his career, being a member uh, being a member of the Monty Python um, comedy act, and then also uh, going on to uh, become a solo director with films like Time Bandits, Brazil, Jabberwocky. 12 Monkeys uh, being one of his most popular films. Uh, This movie is one that, uh, you know, was a box office success in the 90s. Um, It starred Brad Pitt at the time when his uh, stardom was really exploding. Bruce Willis was already a household name. Uh, Madeline Stowe was also a household name uh, during this time as well. So it's interesting because this is my second time watching this movie, and the first time I saw it, I was really, really into it. This time around, surprisingly, not as much, if I'm being quite honest with you all. So I'm curious to know what you guys think about uh, 12 Monkeys revisiting it, um, or if this is your first time uh, around. So why don't we actually kick it off first with Bianca. Bianca, you're the one that wrote the review for the uh, website. What do you think of 12 Monkeys? Well, I'm... I must admit, there was a stage in my when I was a teenager where I was really into like Monty Python and Terry Gilliam's movies. Um, so I, I've, I, personal favorite is Brazil. I just love that movie so oh, much. It's so good. Uh, it's, so good. It's so, it's so good. But I also really like The Fisher King, and um, then I watched Twelve Monkeys, uh, and I think his like early nineties work is really strong. Yes, agreed. And, then I don't know what happened. Like he went, or he, something happened. I think he's just like a filmmaker of this era that wasn't able to yeah. adapt to the changing technology, the changing uh, ways of the system, if you will, the filmmaking studio system. Uh, not everyone is able to kind of yeah. do it the way that someone like Bard Scorsese has, where their style has evolved with the times, you know? So Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this film um, is one of his, uh, in my personal opinion, I think it's his, probably his most accessible movie, uh, because it's, uh, I wonder, it, it's not like Brazil, which is quite a, a very odd movie to it's surreal and it's kind of hard to root for the hero because he's not necessarily a hero and I mean it's not something that's based in fantasy say like the adventures of um, Baron Munchausen which is kind of like a a kid's movie and uh, it's not something as dark and serious as the Fisher King Um, and it's you know, it's got the star appeal of Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis. And I think they're both really good in this. I mean, I forgot how great Bruce Willis is when he's acting. <laughs> and he's just <laughs> doing, like, serious work. Um, and I think that the film is... It's it's not a film that I can just put on any, any day. Uh, it's one of those films that I need to leave it for a couple of years and then go back to it and then sort of appreciate it. Um, there are things, obviously, that don't... I I don't know. I don't really do the, buy the whole romance between the two leads. Um, uh, Madeline's character, her do- the Doctor, and uh, Bruce Willis's character. I just find that a bit forced. But then there's so many like nice little references to other movies, which I, I just love as a cinephile. I mean, the, the Vertigo references, obviously, is is a nice little touch there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how 
how I would rate it in terms of um, whether it's the best pandemic movie out there. Uh, because I don't think it's really, the whole pandemic thing is something I don't think Gilliam's interested in. He's more interested in um, the time travel aspect of it. And I think once it kind of gets bogged down in the story of them trying to stop it from all happening. I think you can sort of lose, get the sense that he's losing interest. I don't know. Anyone... I, I actually think that um, I don't think you're wrong about the time travel aspect being a focus of uh, Terry Gilliam's intentions here, but I think the mental illness aspect mm. of this screenplay is something that it is um, given a lot of attention and a lot of focus as well. And um, believe it or not, actually that's where my real issues with the movie lie. Um, but I'll get into that in just a minute here. Um, let's hear now from uh, Dan Baer. Dan Baer, uh, what do you think of 12 Monkeys? Well, you know how everyone always says that the first um, 10 minutes of Moulin Rouge are this gauntlet that you have to get through in order to get to the good stuff? Yeah, I, I, I've heard that before. The same is true of 12 Monkeys, I think. The opening like 10 15 minutes of this it's so uh, it, it it's so out there and so stylized that i can't i had trouble getting into it and that's not something that i say about many movies but it really throws you into the deep end with the plot and the um <laughs> the the stylization of it all in a way that I found really difficult. Um, there's a lot of story things that I just had questions about that the movie never really did anything with. And I, I don't know. It's, I, I like it. I can't, I can't picture why it was such a big hit i think it's very um like gaudy and overdone i think it was because of the star power and the premise of its uh story you know the high yeah. concept sci-fi premise um you know for a lot of people yeah. this was uh you know a very original movie for its time uh for a lot of folks that oh, also yeah. like like bianca said also had a lot of heavy influences um, from the past as well, yeah. in terms of noir, also to um, paranoia uh, films that dealt with mental illness, I'm sure, back in like the 50s, for example. I'm thinking of things like uh, Shock Corridor, oh, you know? Yeah. It, it wears its influences proudly on its sleeve and tries to do something with them, and I, I don't think it's entirely successful. Okay. All right. Uh, Josh Parham, what about you? So, for me... Especially when I approach Terry Gilliam movies, I'm coming in with a perspective that's a little bit guarded because, to be completely honest with you, I'm not the biggest fan of his movies. Um, I think that he has a very interesting style, but I oftentimes feel like when it comes to the stories, they don't really follow through all that much, and I lose interest in them very quickly. And for a while... 12 Monkeys was actually the movie that I considered to be his best film because it was the one that sort of challenged him to stay on track, just given the nature of of the structure of the movie, that they're racing towards an endpoint that we already sort of know. And revisiting this movie, I gotta say, it didn't really hold up as much as I thought it would. 
And I, I sort of understand your perspective, Dan, where there's like these elements in here that you do kind of like, but I don't know if they really add up to an entirely successful movie. There's something about the way that this story is constructed in the way that Terry Gilliam chooses to tell it with his style that sort of gets in the way of momentum for me. And it's hard for me to get really invested in these characters, despite some good performances there and some interesting things that are happening. I think it gets better towards the end. Like when we start to really establish (laughs) what we're going to, then it starts to kind of pull me in, but everything leading up to that, I feel very like frustrated and, I, I get it. It's a very difficult movie, at least for me, to really get into until we start to get more towards the end. I agree that, like, in the first couple of minutes of the movie, for example, um, you know, when Bruce Willis is, you know, acting crazy and he's drooling and things <laughs> like that, it, it's it's really bad. Like, he is really bad yeah. during those scenes. Um, then he meets up with uh, Brad Pitt's character, uh, Jeffrey. And there's like cartoons playing on the television screens in the mental hospital. And this character uh, is coming off like such a cartoon character in and of himself. And the thing that I just had a lot of issues with this time around were uh, stuff in the mental institution where it's just so generalized in terms of, oh, these people are nuts, crazy. And the understanding of mental illness is not what it is today. Um, I don't think back when this movie was made or... They were making it so dumbed down for a general audience to try and give this movie mainstream blockbuster appeal. Either one, I don't like. So it's like all of that just dealing with am I crazy? Am I not crazy? It just felt so pedestrian in terms of the dialogue to me. And it just didn't feel sophisticated and smart. Yeah. And it didn't explore these issues of mental illness in a deep way that I found to be enlightening or give me any kind of introspective, um, you know, uh, ideas for like ways, like questions I could ask myself or anything along those lines. You know, there's something interesting about the end of the movie. The fact that he, spoiler alert, uh, he watches his own death as a child Uh, that I kind of was like tying everything back into. And then you start getting into the time travel aspect and what, you know, that plays on one's mind mentally and such. That stuff was fine. But everything just in the way that mental illness is depicted, it's like One Flew Over to Cuckoo's Nest came out, you know, how many years, 20 years (laughs) or so before this. And that movie was mature and had such a good take on mental illness that I just look at this and I'm like, this feels so stupid well i just think there's too many there's there's too many ideas going on there um i think the the time trap it's almost like the there's no bit where they just if it's been set completely in the mental institution and you never got to see him go in time travel anywhere else you could have had a really interesting movie there Mm-hmm. where he begins to believe I mean at the point I, I found the movie becoming interesting when he starts to think that he's actually making it all up and he's starting yeah, to feel, yeah. think he actually does have uh, a, a mental illness so I was like that's the movie I want I'm not really interested in the whole other time travel aspect of it I want to see him going through this uh, and, and trying to process it and and having this like you say like a almost like a, a one flew over the cuckoo's nest with a bit of sci-fi element to it yeah but we don't we don't get that movie i got really excited when we uh got 
near the end of the film and uh, James Cole is thinking that all this is made up and it's all in his yeah. head. And I was like, this yeah. is interesting now. Then everything that we've seen is not real up to this point. And I was digging that a lot until it is revealed. Oh, no, no, no. He is right. And it is all real. <laughs> and then I was kind of let down a little bit because I actually thought the other side of it was so much more interesting. Um, if what we had been seeing up until this time was all in his head. Yeah, and I just don't buy that relationship at all between the two of them. Like, no, not at all. Not even in the slightest. It, it does not organically work. <laughs> Stock, uh, Stock, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, despite, despite her best efforts, I thought Madeline Stowe um, actually, she's not bad in this, I don't think, uh, by any means. And Bruce Willis is better than his normal self which is pretty bad so i'll give him a bit of a pass on this one <laughs> I, I think they're both good individually i just don't think that relationship i just don't buy like when they had that kiss that awkward kiss towards the end Ugh. i didn't buy uh, it no, at all no. you know actually a thought that i had while watching this movie was i wonder if it would have been better if bruce willis and brad pitt switched roles oh interesting that would have been mm. interesting Bruce Willis is not capable of pulling off that role, in my opinion, though. I'm, I don't know. I mean, I think the bigger problem is that you need somebody in the lead role who can offer, like, this connection of empathy. And I just don't think Bruce Willis is really the character that does it. He, Like, in his attempts to be more vulnerable and to be more emotional, it just comes across so false to me. And... There are moments that he's not terrible in the movie, but overall, just as a central character to guide me through the story, I just never found myself connecting with him. And it's even it's made even worse by that relationship with the Madeline Stowe character. And also Brad Pitt is more good looking. So I could buy her falling in love with him. I mean, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there is that. <laughs> There's a bit of a Brad Pitt ass cheek in this movie too which i'm sure made everybody happy <laughs> i wasn't mad about it yeah. <laughs> actually wait now that i'm thinking about it bruce willis ass cheeks and brad pitt ass cheeks in this movie all we're missing is christopher Plummer to complete the trifecta it would have been a perfect movie <laughs> it is interesting to see christopher Plummer in this um uh, and i mean his role is very brief i was a little disappointed at i was um hoping for a little bit more here as the uh father to uh, yeah. Jeffrey Brad Pitt's character, but you know, I'll take I'll take Christopher Plummer anytime I can get him on screen. You know, guys, guys, a national treasure. It was entertaining. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy to me that this was based off of or inspired by La Jetée mm. because yeah. like films don't get much simpler than La Jetée, and this is so <laughs> overly complex and complicated. And just over, it's overly everything. <laughs> it's, I, I just come back to that, like, and I'm a big style over substance guy, usually. Same. Like, I will take a lot of style if the substance is not there, but like, I don't know, something about this, the style was, it was just too much. It was, it, it was crowded and overstuffed and just kept relying on those damn Dutch angles. And I'm like, we get it. The world <laughs> is out of whack. 
I will admit that there's an incredible amount of imagination on display in terms of the production design, the costumes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I really, really like the look of this film. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought that the action elements were poorly choreographed, and I hate, hate, hate uh, the sound effects used in this era as well <laughs> so much. There were there were so many elements of this that I, I keep coming back to this. It, like, it just felt cartoony to me. And it doesn't always feel like that was the intention. Although no, not at all. With that, that score. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That I love the score. The score, which at times I was just like, oh, this is a, that was a choice. <laughs> 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 I like it on its own. Just in the context of everything else, it added to the too muchness of it. Well, much like the, uh, much like the artist, uh, the best moment of music in the movie is the Vertigo music. <laughs> 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 um, I, I actually really, really dug the slow motion and the uh, stylized aspects of everything that happens in the airport towards the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, I actually really liked all of that a lot. The dramatic music and I... I I mean, maybe I'm getting too ahead of myself here in terms of discussing the ending of the movie, but no one has ever, I don't think, fully cracked exactly the the ending of the movie in terms of what the scientist means when she says that she's in insurance. There's multiple interpretations of that to different people. And I'm really curious to know what you all think. Is it cl- clear cut and dry? Um, like, what what do you guys think about um, that ending? Because to me, that one line of dialogue gave me more to think about in regards to this movie than the <laughs> than the preceding the two hours yeah. before. <laughs> and it actually helped bump the movie up for me one full point because I actually thought it made the movie that much more relevant. And intriguing. So I'm really, really curious to know what you all think. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, 
or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm going to just pick up my pessimistic hat off the floor and put it <laughs> on my hat. Um, I, I, I think it's sinister. I don't know. I think it's like, I, I don't know. I'm a conspiracy nut. Sorry. <laughs> I just feel like it's like almost as if they've been planning it and it's all a way to sort of control the people in the future. Yeah. Well, they say oh that God. the virus uh, outbreak cannot be stopped. It's always going to happen. He's just sent back in time to observe it and bring back information to the present, which would then hopefully allow for them to create a cure uh, for the virus in the present day. So ensuring that it's always going to fall into place exactly as they intend. Uh, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, who's going to get that cure? That's what I start thinking about. It's like, you know, who... It's not going to be the, the prisoners. It's not going to be like Cole. I mean... And, and it's he, not going to be the know. people in the mental institution. No. So who's going to get that? It all feels very sinister to me. The Christopher Plummers of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it does certainly seem to comment on this idea that it's ensuring that this world-ending event will always happen like the the goal is never to stop it it's just to learn from it and to make sure that these power structures that are in place will always be there you know you have to kind of have these events happen like he has to go back in time and he has to get shot and be killed in front of himself but it's also making sure that these events in the future happen because certain people need them to happen to have their power structures in place now do you look at that in regards to today's events, for example, with what's going on with our current uh, pandemic as a way of just mother nature creating balance in the world, if you will. I know that's a really, really dark way of looking at it, but in kind of trying to draw some sort of a parallel here, you know what I mean? Obviously, one is humans and the other one is more natural in terms of just the, the earth doing what the earth does. But do you think that's what it's just all about is just balance? Um, I mean, I think that that is a perspective, you know, that uh, every time that there's a natural disaster, there's always an opinion of it is sort of the planet rebelling against the inhabitants on it. Um, And I think that those are definitely themes that the movie kind of plays with. I think this one is a little bit more insidious in nature because it is more um, from like a man-made perspective. But that notion of like natural events as a balance balancing out the kind of terrible human actions that are happening on the planet have certainly been in other films and you can see it in this one as well. I also look at it as the line uh, that she's an insurance as there will be these horrible events. Who will profit off of it? Who will be the ones to uh, come out of this better despite the fact that there are people dying and there is great human cost. And that is something that got me thinking a lot, not only about our, like I said, our current situation today, but also just in general throughout human history. Mm. Um, whenever there is any kind of, whether it is man-made or natural uh, disaster, there's always going to be someone that's going to take advantage of that situation for their own gain. 
And that is a very, very sinister undertone, which for me, um, like I said, really, really kind of helped contextualize this movie in a way that made it more important in my mind. This is what I love about Poddemic. We get to discuss these topics. (laughs) (laughs) And I also still find it interesting that that is still also towards the end of the film. Like the ending of the movie is where things start to coalesce a little bit more for me. And I wish that that had been present throughout the rest of it. I do like the ending. I do. But it's just so frustrating to get to that ending that it doesn't completely make up for everything else for me. Agreed. And it's interesting because that ending... and Because when I first watched it, I was like... Oh, so she's definitely going to kill him and then turn it off. And then I kind of like thought about it for five seconds and was like, oh, wait, maybe not. Um, and it's interesting because if if she just lets it happen, if it's, you know, like you guys are talking about, that's that then the movie is saying, Rick, really like, listen to the crazy people. Even though they're they are crazy, the Cassandra like, com- the the Cassandra complex, I think it's called, right? Yeah, they, that she gives a speech yeah. on at one point. Yeah, it's like no, they're maybe they're not so crazy, y'all, because Brad Pitt is talking the whole time about you know the the people in power. They're keeping us down oh, and they're yeah. destroying the planet. He calls his father God, doesn't he? Yeah, you know, yeah, because he creates viruses. And mm-hmm. That's literally he's in control of these um this something that's worse biological than, weapons yeah, yeah it's 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 yeah it's a really interesting way to end the movie because you think oh okay it's going to end with you know the uh, uh Bruce Willis's character as a young boy looking and getting in the car and you think okay that's the ending that and then it's just that little scene at the end on uh and it's a, almost like a throwaway line upon like you say upon first watch you don't really sort of pay attention but then when yeah. you watch it again it's like oh okay yeah yeah i do think it, yeah like like matt was saying i think it makes the film stronger for me with that um just that tiny little bit at the end because i don't I, it it just leaves you with so much to analyze and and mm. deconstruct but i i feel like the 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 middle section of the the film is so long that it really does take it's, it just gets a bit boring towards like i don't know the whole bit where they're in the motel and the thing about with the boy in the well uh, that goes on for yeah. far too long it's just there, there's at least 40 minutes you could cut out of that movie i agree I definitely agree. It's got some pacing issues for sure. Um, there are some sections that I find to be uh, pretty intriguing at times. And once again, um, at least the filmmaking, you know, I, I get it. There's a lot of Dutch camera angles in this movie, <laughs> but there are um, a, there there are enough moments of style in this that I was in it, you know, the whole time. It didn't ever yeah. fully lose me. I'm not about to say that this is a poor movie by any means I'm, I'm i like it i'm just not as in love with it as people were back when it first came out as i was when i first saw it for the first time um i think that it's a movie that has quite honestly i don't think it's aged um that well in terms of its style i think the ideas that the movie is playing with have aged well 
but I don't know if the uh, well, and also too, I want to just say, like I said, other than the mental illness aspect, which I think is once again very very pedestrian in this movie and does not have a level of sophistication that um it should have today i think it's actually quite offensive at times um but the time travel other elements that we were just discussing in terms of the ending i think all of that works uh pretty well yeah i'd agree with that i think i i almost wouldn't want to cut anything because I appreciated the moments of downtime in the movie when it wasn't screaming and shouting from all angles. And I could like sort of sit back and, you know, relax. <laughs> Literally all the angles. Yeah. All the <laughs> angles. Oh my God. <laughs> and what do you think of the, the way that the uh, future is presented to us in the movie. Oh, I, I love the design of it. It looks incredible. I One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he goes out to explore slash procure a sample and there are just all the animals everywhere. And the snow. I, I, it yeah. looks really, really good. Yeah. But other than that, it's just Brazil on steroids. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and with a whole lot less to say. And I think that's the thing, like, Brazil is such a brilliant satire, and this is no is not like anywhere near that. No, and I'm not even the biggest fan of Brazil, but even I would say like that movie has so much more interesting things to say, and its design elements are also much more interesting than they are in Twelve Monkeys. Yeah. So, uh, with that said, final thoughts on 12 Monkeys. Um, anything that we did not mention that you want to bring up? Uh, Bianca, what do you got for us? Uh, I just want to say that wigs in the, at the end of the film are really great. Um, Surprisingly good <laughs> for what you would buy in just a regular store. Yeah. <laughs> Love that mustache. Yeah, like, come on. How does she do? Was she wearing a wig or did she dye her hair? Because this is a thing that I always see in movies. <laughs> they dye their hair and it's perfect. I mean... That is a lace front that would make RuPaul proud. (laughs) Like that is one hell of a wig that she's wearing. Also, too, this is like a very, very tiny, minuscule thing. But I absolutely hate long-haired Brad Pitt in this movie. Just the look of it so much. Oh yeah. Short-haired Brad Pitt in the Mental Institution. Good look for the movie. Made his character stand out a little bit. The long hair. I just was like, what? That's a choice. (laughs) Well, it's not just the long hair because that's also when his eye goes wonky too. Which my dad, full disclosure, um, and my sister, I'll have to tell her to listen to this because she never listens to the show. But uh, my dad has told me over the years, over and over and over again, that he thinks that Brad Pitt's performance in this movie is one of the best that he's ever seen. Because he's like, Matt, how many actors do you know can do that with their eyes? Tell me. And I'm like, I I don't know. And he's like, I've never seen anything like that before. It's it's unbelievable. It's great acting. Great acting. You should have won the Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh um, Dan Bear, final thoughts. Um, I think I've about said it all. I, it's just like it's the whole thing is just it's Brazil on steroids, and Brazil was just fine as it was. Thank you very much, <laughs> Josh. Uh, the only other thing that I would want to mention is I do want to circle back to Brad Pitt for a second because I feel mm. like. This is a very polarizing performance. And, you know, you said your dad, he really loved it. But 
I don't know. I, I go back and forth as to whether or not he's actually giving a good performance in this film. <laughs> it's very loud and over the top to the point that versus a performance, I, I can name a ton of loud and over the top performances that we've seen over the last couple of years that are at least steeped in a level of drama that there is humanity that comes across. I'm thinking of things like Denzel Washington and Fences, for example, or even Joaquin Phoenix and Joker last year. Um, there's like depth to these loud, look at me type of performances. Uh, Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour being another one, you know, uh, where the quote unquote acting is on full display. And that's what Brad Pitt is doing in this movie. Once again, I think the thing that is that he's hurt by in this is I just don't believe that this is a realistic portrayal of someone with mental illness. And I never buy into that. Instead, I just think it's like Brad Pitt just freaking going, I hate to say this, crazy on screen. And they call it mental illness. And that's that. And it's like, I just don't find it believable. And it makes me then question the tone of the rest of the movie then. Is it, am I supposed to be taking this seriously? Is there supposed to be a heightened aspect to this where it's supposed to be comedic? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's very like goofy. And I don't necessarily mind it being goofy, but I think my big problem with it is that for much of this film, you're supposed to believe that this character is the one responsible for the release of this virus. And there's just no like menace or danger to this character. There's never one moment where I don't think of him as anything other than a clownish buffoon, really. And mm -hmm. I think that if there had been maybe that undercurrent of a more insidious person that was sort of hiding behind all of these antics, I would be more into the performance. But as it is, it just seems like this very weird and silly sidekick, and he never morphs into an actual dangerous presence within the film and that i think is an element that's really missing from that performance and from that character and that's why i, I give brad pitt a lot of props for going there it's really like the first time we saw him do that in a movie but i do feel like it's missing a very important element to make it a completely successful performance i was just gonna say do you think that's a writing issue or an issue with brad pitt's acting I think it's both. It could be a really. writing issue, yeah. I think it's part writing. Um, and I also think that, like I said, I think this movie's portrayal of those that are mentally insane is to just go as broad and as general as humanly possible. Um, so if we see them doing wonky shit and we see them like acting with their full bodies and jumping around and flailing and so on and so forth, yeah, they're so crazy. Look at them. I just I kept throughout the whole performance – throughout all of Brad Pitt's scenes, I was, I just couldn't stop thinking of Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> Never go full retard! Oh, no. oh, <laughs> yeah. Look at Brad Pitt. 12 monkeys went home empty-handed. <laughs> he didn't go fully home empty-handed. He did win that Golden Globe, which we'll get to in just a second here, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, and then my my only ever final thought is I actually really, really like the scene where Bruce Willis is in the car uh, listening to the music and he's remarking on like how he doesn't have music like this in the future. And um, I actually really enjoyed those moments a lot. I think it gets a little overdone when he gets to the lake and he's like, oh, the stars in the air. And I'm just like, OK, <laughs> buddy. <laughs> It's like a little excited. Calm down now, calm down now, yeah. 
But the reason why I like that moment with the music in particular is that the movie decides to end with uh, one of the best songs, you know, What a Wonderful World, uh, performed by Louis Armstrong. And uh, that that's just a song that I think complements the movie very well and also is a song that I could imagine uh, James Cole listening to on the radio and being like, oh, great track. Love it. Excellent. <laughs> you know, so um, I, I, I really, really like that moment a lot. Uh, other than that. Design elements really, really well done. I have some writing issues performances are a bit of a mixed bag as well on the whole though i still like it enough that i'm going to give it a seven out of ten actually um which maybe is a bit higher than i was even anticipating heading into this review but i think there is enough interesting ideas here and enough going on visually and it wasn't a slog of a watch for me to get through um i i I did think that there were some good elements to it overall, some that have aged well, some that haven't aged as well, and some that other people, I think, find to be, you know, pretty incredible that their grades are probably going to be uh, higher. So I, I, I want to fully acknowledge that. So with that said, uh, grade, Bianca, what grade would you give 12 Monkeys? It's really hard for me because the 2020 Bianca is like seven, uh, but then the, like... 15 year old version of me who is fighting to get out is like eight eight say eight (laughs) Um, because like this i just remember this film had a major influence on me as a teenager and was like this in brazil with other films as well were the the ones that sort of got me into into studying film so I have to sort of like take that on board uh, just because I was so impressed with the mise-en-scene and the references to other movies. It was like, oh, I've seen Vertigo. I get that. And, you know, <laughs> being smug about it. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I know that we don't do points, you know, so I can't go 7.5, but. Nope. I have to go with eight. All right. Uh, Dan Bear, what about you? <laughs> I, wow, I'm didn't think I was going to be so low in comparison to everyone else. Um, I'm, I'm at a six with this. Um, it, it, I don't think it works. That said, I did enjoy it. I, I didn't hate watching it. Um, I had a, a good time watching it, but I think it's, it just way too overdone. Okay. Josh, I am also going to be at a six out of 10 for this one. In all honesty, the majority of the film sort of feels like a five out of 10. And then the ending pulls it just over the edge to bump it up to a six for me. Um, But overall it is a very mixed bag. There's elements that I think are interesting that I do like, but there's also plenty of other stuff that I think doesn't really work in terms of its style, in terms of its storytelling, in terms of its performances. And, you know, it's not a bad movie and there are things to like about it, but it doesn't really get to the, really like the realm of recommendation for me now here's the very interesting thing about uh 12 monkeys not really an awards film the year that it came out um outside of things like the saturn awards or the berlin international film festival where terry gilliam was nominated for the golden uh bear award this movie had very very little impact in its award season run with two exceptions the golden globes 
Brad Pitt is nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role, and he wins. And thanks the makers of Kale Pectate. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's right. And the film is nominated for two Oscars, one for Brad Pitt and one for costume design uh, for Julie Weiss. Now, I'm looking at the year and I am, I have to admit, a little shocked that this didn't get in for production design. Now, do, do we think that that's because it's too contemporary at times, perhaps? And that's why it didn't get in? Probably, but when looking at that by that same token, like the costume design. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could also say that about that. They're, you know, the, the crazy suit that Bruce Willis has to put on in the beginning of the movie. And other than that, it's just, you know, I was going to say, I think it got the nomination just for that. Honestly. Yeah, probably. Yeah. It's a little shocking that it even managed to break in there with that nomination, to be honest. It's very unusual um, because we talk about like the overt style of this movie so much. But it's interesting how even though it feels incredibly stylish while watching it, it wasn't stylish enough that it broke into these categories um, at the Oscars themselves outside of that costume design nomination. Now, I haven't seen Restoration, but it looks like your typical... You know, period piece film that wins costume design and art direction at the Academy Awards. Um, has anyone seen that? I have not. No. Okay, so we can't speak to that. Um, but I, you know, yeah, I, I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave it alone because even still, I think my uh, costume design winner of that year is probably. I don't know. Maybe I would go Braveheart. Actually, I don't know. Just because of the scale of it all, maybe. But Sense and Sensibility's got nice costumes too. Yeah. Yeah, Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. And Clueless, honestly, if we're looking at Consumer. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to imagine looking at the best supporting actor lineup here uh, Brad Pitt, once again, nominated for 12 Monkeys alongside Tim Roth for Rob Roy, Ed Harris, Apollo 13, James Cromwell, Babe, and Oscar winner Kevin Spacey, The Usual Suspects. Um, what do, what do you guys think of, uh, you know, that lineup, the outcome and so on and so forth? Anything you would change? This is, I think it's I a pretty know. good lineup. I think it's really? a great lineup. Yeah. I actually, I don't know. I, I think this is a lineup of a lot of actors that I like, but I don't know necessarily for these performances. I think that's the disconnect that I'm having. Oh, I love Tim Roth and Rob Roy so much. Mm, <laughs> really? I love oh. Tim Roth. I love <laughs> Tim Roth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I love him and Rob Roy. I don't oh. know. I'm glad he has an Oscar nomination, but I don't know yeah. about that movie. Same for James Cromwell for Babe as well. Oh, it's so great. It, babe, I, I rewatched that recently and just like, uh, it's the most charming gosh darn movie. And I'm, I'm almost upset that he didn't win. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think he's the best of the category, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that'll do pick. Loud, I mean, oh. don't make me cry. <laughs> I think that Kevin Spacey winning for Usual Suspects. I mean, one, it's a good performance. It's not a bad performance by any means. Uh, but two, I think the impact of that film's twist, that character, um, definitely had some influence on that win in that category for sure. And '95 was a big year for him too, because he had that and yeah, uh, Seven and Outbreak. Yeah. 
and honestly, he's better in seven. Like, I, I was going to give seven, him something. I'd rather nominate him for seven. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, Brad Pitt showing up for 12 Monkeys nomination. I get it for its time. Totally get it. Yeah. And and he was a big movie star doing a role that big movie stars don't usually do, especially in 1995. And I think there was a novelty to that. And I get it. I don't think it's really that good of a performance. But for the time, I understand why people were really taken by it. Sure. And it was his first Oscar nomination um, in a category that he would win, you know, how many years later uh, for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's funny how, you know, he gets this role. I'm sorry, this Oscar nomination in 1995 and doesn't get a nomination again until 13 years later, 2008, uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, so he had a you know a dry run there where I don't know if necessarily like his career it seemed like you know he went the path of obviously blockbuster leading man status and I don't think Brad Pitt has like turned into the Brad Pitt that we know him of uh, as of today until like that turnaround uh, in that uh, era of like the late two thousands or so I feel like once he did assassination of Jesse James uh, things started to like kind of turn a corner for him where he got rid of that leading man uh status and started just putting more into the projects that he cared about established plan b to back projects that he cared about you know what i mean it's like it's like our entire perception of him i feel like changed and i always feel like that was there with brad pitt i've always gotten the perception that he was never that comfortable as a leading man he always wanted to do like character actor work or be a producer but because the was so good looking, you just look at him as like, yes, you're a leading man. And I do think that it took a while for him to get established enough to make that switch over. And I think that we are all the better for it. I think that him as a producer and him as these smaller character roles um, that he usually plays now, I think that's a much better use of his talent. And I'm certainly grateful for those types of projects that come up now. And who doesn't love his cameos in being John Malkovich or Deadpool 2? Come on, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, all right. So uh, with that said, uh, we're going to go here now. Bianca, where can I find you on the internet? Well, you can find me at the Film B. And you can also find me over at Their League. And a shout out to Stop, um, Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, my other podcast that I do. Um, Yeah. Congratulations on the launch. Uh, it Thanks. looks like it's been going very well so far. So far, yes. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Um, doing a podcast, right, Matt? Uh, it's got its ups and downs, that's for sure. <laughs> Your entire life basically revolves around it if you want to do it consistently. So that's sometimes a drawback. But, you know, if you love what you love, then it won't ever be uh, considered work, right? I realized it was Saturday today because we were doing this podcast. So I was like, oh, okay, at least uh, if I know what podcast I'm on, I know what day of the week it is. It does help. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. <laughs> <laughs>
And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of 12 Monkeys here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always. We shall see you all next time. Pandemic. Pandemic. That's seriously <laughs> what they need to be called. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.